I would like to call up our panelists to prepare for our next conversation. We're going to be focusing on trends, opportunity, and forecasted growth for the Twin Cities multifamily. So if you have a red lanyard on, I'm looking at you. Come on up. Don't be shy. All right, I would like to welcome Tony with Doran Companies, Matt with Kraus Anderson Development, Brandon with United Properties, another Tony with Clifton Larson Allen. We're gonna have to find get creative with that one. Um, Adam with the Regional Council of Carpenters for the North Central States, and our fearless moderator for this morning's session, Jacob Steen, shareholder with Larkin Hoffman. So once y'all get settled, you can turn on your mics. Jacob, I'm going to turn things over to you. Good morning, take it away. All right, good morning. My name is Jake Steen with Larkin Hoffman. I, there are a lot of faces I recognize in the room. Uh, I'm a zoning and land use attorney at Larkin. Uh, my previous life, I was a city planner for the city of Minneapolis, so I've had a long-standing interest in what's going on in the city, uh, specifically multifamily. As the mayor alluded to, there's a lot going on, uh, and not just recently, but over the last several years in terms of regulation and policy that affects multifamily. I think the last couple of months has brought some of uh, the bigger, well, as the mayor called it, elephant in the room. Uh, so I'm excited to hear what this group has to say. Uh, and without further ado, I'm going to let each, uh, give, give each of my panelists and maybe a minute or two to introduce themselves and talk about what they're doing. So, Tony, why don't you go ahead? Great, great. Good to be with all of you this morning. I'm Tony Halata, Managing Principal at CLA. Um, I joined the firm in 2001 to lead and build the uh, wealth management practice, which today we have about $10.5 under management. Um, we are big investors in private real estate. We love private real estate as, a, as an asset class. Um, and within private real estate, we've invested heavily in, in affordable housing. <clears throat> I personally, if I was sitting in the seat of any of you developers out there, that's the place I would focus on. I think it's the biggest delta and gap we have in this country right now from a supply-demand perspective, and we think it's going to be a great place to be for the next 10, 15 years, and uh, look forward to sharing uh, more thoughts. One of the things that we did in the firm about three years ago is I stepped out of the leadership role of Wealth Advisory to help our clients. We have about 1,200 real estate developers and operators that are clients of our firm, and we saw that they needed help putting their capital stacks together, and we have a broker-dealer. So today I lead a group, uh, Lucas is here, and Caleb with me is part of that group, and we raise capital for real estate projects, and we've done several projects around the Twin Cities, uh, as well as across the country. Uh, good morning. My name is Tony Keekley. I'm president of development for uh, Doran Companies. Uh, I lead up all of our development uh, opportunities. It's primarily multifamily here recently uh, in both Minneapolis and Denver, and then we're also exploring uh, some other markets. Um, I agree. I think, you know, affordable housing is a, a big problem that we have to try to achieve, and I think um, it actually needs the help. Or we need help probably more from the legislative side. Affordable housing is really hard, um, especially the, the traditional tax credit Section 42 affordable housing is really hard. Some of us aren't that smart. And uh, th there's got to be other ways to kind of tackle that problem. Good morning. I'm Brandon Champo, Senior Vice President for United Properties. I lead all of our commercial development in the Twin Cities, uh, which includes our office, industrial, and mixed-use multifamily projects. Uh, <clears throat> I'm excited. I won't get into detail today. But you know, we've, we've been primarily known as a market rate uh, developer for many years. We don't have a huge pipeline or a huge uh, uh, portfolio of, of multifamily units like Doran Companies and some others, but um, 
have slowly been ramping up our multifamily development and we're big on the senior side, but over the last couple of years I've been studying LIHTC affordable uh, uh, in depth and are entering that business line, so I'm excited to talk about that today. Good morning, everybody. I'm Adam Dunnick. I'm the Director of Government Affairs for the uh, North Central States Regional Council of Carpenters. Been working around the construction industry for about 17, 18 years here in the Twin Cities. 17-year uh, resident of Minneapolis in the Standish Erickson neighborhood, so it's great to see uh, Mayor Fry here. Um, how we come at this issue is a number of different ways. First of all, the multifamily world is a story of growth and partnership for us. Uh, just over 10 years ago, we had 400 carpenters, union carpenters, working in that sector. Now we have almost 1,600, so big growth. I can talk a little bit more about that as well. Um, it's a story of partnership, working with developers, working with end users, working with the cities uh, through regulatory processes, at times weighing in financially, as well as just at the grassroots level to help advance projects. Uh, we're really excited to be a part of this discussion. From rent control to uh, workforce, how we recruit future carpenters, bring people into the industry so we have uh, union carpenters to help build these projects. We're, we're happy to be a part of this discussion. Uh, Matt Alexander uh, with Krauss Anderson, uh, Krauss Anderson Development Company, which is part of the, uh, the Krauss Anderson family of companies. Uh, I've been there 15 years now, 20 years in this market, uh, most recently doing housing in the last eight of this uh, current cycle. Uh, all other projects we, we focus on are, are commercial, grocery anchored retail centers, redevelopment of some of our older shopping centers. Uh, yeah, just happy to be part of the conversation. And I'm not that smart either. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you. I think in 2019, I was up on the stage and our panel was talking about uh, the impacts of inclusionary zoning. Uh, and that's just one of many policies, local government policies that has really shaped the multifamily market. And of course, uh, as the mayor mentioned, we now have rent control. Uh, St. Paul, of course, uh, adopted a much more strict and inflexible rent control policy that doesn't provide exemptions for new construction. Uh, there's a 3% cap on rent increases and there's no tie to any economic indicators. So even if we've experienced 6% inflation, uh, there's really nothing to control it. Now Minneapolis uh, has a much more uncertain future. Uh, I, I think that that's both promising and uh, a little unnerving. We've got seven new council members and we're switching to a strong mayor system. So I'd like to hear from really all of our panelists what your predictions are, what your thoughts are, reactions, and what you're seeing uh, in the market right now. Uh, so maybe Tony, you wanna talk from a financial aspect? Yeah, <coughs> you know, uh, one, of, one of the, the just what I'd like to share a little bit of where we have some insights is we're talking a big players around the country that are allocating capital to real estate projects. Uh, these would be private equity real estate groups like Heitman or Harrison Street out of Chicago or Goldman Sachs out of New York uh, to family offices out of Salt Lake City that are allocating capital real estate. I can tell you in 2019, I grew up in Wisconsin, but moved here in 89, been a proud citizen of Minnesota and so proud of our city for so many years. And what's interesting is when we go to a national conference now, first thing people say is when we shake their hand and we say we're from Minneapolis, they're like, how are things in Minneapolis, you know? Because we, we, we did get a black eye, right? We, I mean, to me, we were one of the, probably the most pristine cities in the country, had some great things going, and whether the media treated us properly or not, we, we have a black eye now nationally, and, and, and we've got to overcome that black eye. 
Um, and it, it is impacting the amount of capital that's going to come here to the city right now. We, we, there are institutions that do not want to allocate capital here. Part of it is the rent control. They have uncertainty. So you may have read in the paper uh, two weeks ago about a project in St. Paul that Bob Lux was doing at Lattice. We raised the capital for that project, and I saw somebody from Frogtown quoted saying, I think the investor's bluffing. I was in that investor's office in Salt Lake City two weeks ago. They're not bluffing. They have a fiduciary responsibility for their investors to allocate capital. And what they said is, Tony, we cannot put money into a market that's got rent control in place. Uh, and if it goes wrong and sideways, we're just going to get blasted by our investors. They are going to just say, what were you doing investing money in that market? So, it, so I think we've got to think about this, that there's so much uncertainty around this rent control right now, it's going to really impact. There's a ton of projects that have been taken off the table. I think Pat Ryan stepped away from the market. Uh, there's a lot of people that are stepping away. So let's face it, it the, the, what I love about the mayor that he stated is he understands supply is going to be a big part of the solving the issue, right? We're going to have a problem with supply because if we don't have the money, uh, we're not going to get the supply. So if you don't have the money, you can have all the plans in the world. But we have to depend on getting capital allocated here, money flowing to support these projects, and that's my concern. Now, the good thing is if the mayor can get out front and talk about his, if people understand that he's not for rent control, and I don't think Carter is talking about, you know, changing some things, um, I think that'll help. But right now, everybody's focused on the suburbs. They don't want to, you know, touch downtown. Yeah, I would agree with everything you said. I think, um, actually, I think uncertainty is just as bad as St. Paul's rent control right now. Um, I attend some of these national ULI conferences, and you know the first thing when you say you're from Minneapolis, they're like, God, what do you think is going to happen with the election, and what do you think is going to happen to your city, and um, you know a lot of these major equity players, they don't have to make investments in Minnesota, they don't have to make investments in Minneapolis, they may have to make investments in in the Midwest, but frankly, when you're looking at Denver and you're seeing 10 percent, eight and 10 percent rent growth, Boise, Idaho, Salt Lake City. Those are better bets for you to put your equity in. And I think until Minneapolis actually passes something, you're actually going to see a disinvestment in kind of Minneapolis. And really to the root of the mayor's problem is you're not going to be able to put together your capital stack, and it's actually going to, it's going to hurt affordable housing as well. Yeah, I don't, <clears throat> I don't have much smarter to add to that. Uh, other than I think to reiterate what Tony just said, I mean, I think developers and, and capital partners just, crave certainty, and until we know what the rules are, we're not going to invest, and right now, the uncertainty in Minneapolis, unfortunately, I think is going to stop all new supply until people know what the, what the new rules are, and I think is definitely already stopped supply in St. Paul. We had an investor partner in town last week who said that they just pulled out of a project um, after four to you know, four or five months that they were invested in, and have now are walking away from pursuit costs on, on a project in St. Paul. They, have, they don't want to even touch it. And, and I think to Tony's point, we're, we're in the Denver market, and yet when you're looking at the, that type of growth, uh, we're looking in Phoenix right now, we're looking at even growth higher than that. I mean, I think anybody, uh, you know, if you were told you can buy this house here, but you're capped at 3%, you can buy this house, and, you know, it may go up 30% the next year. I mean, anybody's going to pick this investment. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, and if I uh, sound a little bit passionate about this issue, it's because we jumped into it uh, with both feet back in September. Uh, as an organization, we just uh, decided, looking around, I was talking to state legislators, some of the city council members in St. Paul, and they asked, you know, where are you guys on this issue? And I said, where is anybody on this issue? It was like the sleepiest 
public debate, debate we've had in quite some time, especially in St. Paul. Minneapolis had kind of floated beneath the radar because of the public safety discussion. And so I was sitting in the office with the business rep, Woodrow Piner, and, and a developer the day after the election with a developer, and he said, I just got off the phone with somebody who dropped a deal for me in Minneapolis. He just said, we're out, we're not doing it. And, and he, he was confused, he said, wait a minute, the election turned out great in Minneapolis. We beat back the public safety amendment, we got some good council member results, we think we can work with this policy. And it didn't matter, he said, it doesn't matter, the, the vote was taken, you guys took a position on the issue. So that, in and of itself, kind of had such a chilling effect that, you know, I hate to tell people I told you so, but it's, it's really frustrating to me that, especially in St. Paul, the mayor didn't listen to us. His support, even, while even though he said it was kind of tempered and said it was because uh, they were gonna fix the policy, but his support is why it passed. There's no, you can't make a mistake about it. I was pretty invested in the campaign, so again, if I sound a little fired up about it, I, I am, <laughs> I, I am. We saw about a 10 point uh, polling swing in a week or two because of what the mayor said and people kind of just followed him along. And it's really unfortunate for St. Paul because so much more of their housing needs to be subsidized. It just does, the market over there just needs that help. I saw that when I was at the Met Council. And so, you know, we'll have to figure out how to undo this, but it's gonna take five or 10 years as a region. I really think that and it's, it, it is what it is. We'll have to try to fix it and make, make do with what's, uh, what's out there. <coughs> Yeah, we're, we're in uh, production right now of two projects, one in downtown Minneapolis next to our headquarters and my uh, HCMC that's, uh, we broke ground September of 2019. And uh, we're under, we, we then uh, broke ground on another project in St. Paul in uh, December of 2020 of the, uh, the U.S. Bank site on the University in Raymond. So we've been in production about six, around, around 600 units of, of new, new stuff coming on in both those markets. And, and you know, if, if we could go back now, we'd probably we would probably shelve those projects and and walk away. Um, I remember when we were getting ready to close our on the Wells on the Wells Fargo site now called the Larkin. Um, we got ahead of the inclusionary zoning requirement, so we saw value in that. So when we were actually trying to figure out how to take this risk in downtown Minneapolis, because we were so excited about being on our block, the continuing growth of Elliott Park area. Uh, and the heavy investment we had already made on our block. And we saw that as a, as a reason, and it kind of feels a bit of a, a kick in the gut, to be honest, because you, you're, already, you're already there. We're, we're opening mid-March for 342 market rate units, and uh, mid-July in St. Paul uh, with 222 units. That's actually, that project's called MOTA, not University of Raymond. So, so Adam, you said, five to 10 years until we get some stabilization. You know, that's just assuming we're, you know, kind of waiting to see what happens. I mean, from a Minneapolis perspective, with this new council, seven out of 13 are new. Uh, they have, you know, we heard from the mayor, he doesn't support uh, this, the, the, the St. Paul model. What for this group would it take to give you some of that certainty, uh, right? I mean, what is it gonna give, give development community certainty to bring money back to Minneapolis? Well, I hope uh, there's a big discussion that many of you are involved in having to do with exempting certain things and making exceptions and being, being very clear about what the policy is and how it impacts people. If there's not a new construction exemption, that's that would be uh, really crippling for us. I mean, there's lots of different ways to kind of kneel around it. Another idea, which I would gladly float out to this group, is let's not even implement a rent control policy. The ordinance gives, or the charter amendment rather, gives 
uh, the council the leeway to do that, but the council has to agree and come to some consensus about what that looks like. And if it's very divided and if the mayor is not supportive of doing rent control, he doesn't have to sign a rent control ordinance. It doesn't have to happen. Uh, would that be a little bit of kind of thumbing your nose at Minneapolis voters? Maybe a little bit in some way, but if, if, if either proponent, like what we're already seeing in St. Paul is you have proponents that are frustrated at the mayor that he wants to make exceptions to the policy. And then you have five of the council members that have in some ways been opposed to the policy. Well, how do you, how do you make that work politically? It's really hard to build consensus. And so my advice would be to, to not enact a, a policy if it's gonna be harmful, especially, especially with all the other things that they have on their plate to deal with. Yeah, I think if there's, I guess, a glass half full view right now, as it relates to Minneapolis, I would say that, I think to Adam's point, like there needs to be a, a public debate about the best way to uh, fix the affordability problem, and, and there really hasn't been. And I think that um, it's gonna take a lot of educating because I, I think a lot of council members are gonna be afraid to uh, say that they're smarter than the voters. And so if the voters have voted for rent control, I think we're gonna have to try to figure something out. But hopefully in this process, we, we are able to, to bring a number of perspectives to the table and, and try to create some policies and, uh, and, res and try to bring some resources to help fix the problem because there is no question it's, it's a, a problem. Yeah, I, I think the, hopefully the voters will actually um, understand this when if you're capping rent at 3%, you're also capping the value of the property and you're actually capping the value of the real estate taxes that you're gonna get. Um, so at some point, your general fund actually is gonna suffer itself and you're not gonna actually be able to afford additional services for the city. Um, because you're capping the value of, of your real estate, probably the, the greatest point of your real estate uh, in your market. I'm aware of uh, one one project downtown. I'm not going to mention the property, but it's uh, you know it's a it's a great property with with a grocery store underneath. Got housing. There's residents in there that just received. Their, they're trying to get their renewals done, and I've heard of 30% rent hikes for the renewal. Get it done now while you can. Yeah. yeah. Because of the uncertainty, I think that's a response that we have to re be realistic with ourselves that, you know, a lot of landlords, investors, folks that, that want to make sure they protect their return are going to throw that, that higher number out. Maybe they'll lose some percentage of folks that won't renew, but at least that sets that bar at a, at a spot where, uh, where rent control can't come in and can cause too much damage. I, I, new information. Quick question I have. Do, do you feel, what's the difference between what St. Paul passed versus Minneapolis and what impact does that have on capital allocation to the two cities? Equal? Do you think Minneapolis is harmed as much as St. Paul or one versus other? It's not determined yet. I think St. Paul scares everybody more because there is some parameters. Right. <laughs> but right now, Minneapolis is unknown. But Minneapolis could be worse. So why would you make an investment, in, especially in this time of uncertainty? And in prior panels, we, even before rent control, a lot of the developers were talking about pulling out of Minneapolis due to inclusionary zoning, due to uncertainty. Where are those dollars gonna go? Are they going to the suburbs? Is it gonna stay in the market or are they leaving the state? Yeah, maybe I'll take that one. <clears throat> you know, lot, right now the, the popular thing, and Lucas who's part of my team, you back there laughing, but. He, uh, you know, right now there's a lot of money that wants to go to the Sunshine States, they want to go to Texas, they want to go to Florida, they want to go to <clears throat> Arizona, Salt Lake City, where there's uh, white-collar job growth. 
Um, it's very easy for us to get a deal done in those markets, very difficult for us to get a deal done, you know, in this market. So what we're looking at is saying, okay, do we want to push a rock uphill every day in our job or do we want to push a rock downhill and where it's easier to raise capital? Let's go to the markets that are easy to raise capital where we know people want to place money and have confidence. So, um, you know, we're working on deals in Salt Lake City. We're going to work on deals in Phoenix. And we've kind of, kind of, you know, if we find the right deal in this market, like we're going to do a deal up in Maple Grove, um, you know, we'll look at that market and some of the suburbs. But, you know, as far as downtown Minneapolis or St. Paul, I think we'd probably say no to wanting to work on a project right now because we just think it's too hard. You know, it's just, it, we just think it's too, too challenging to find the money that we'd want to invest in a deal right now. So, Yeah, I think um, probably over the last five years that we've seen is, um, <clears throat> we've seen investment in the suburbs. Um, we've also seen kind of a demographic shift. If I look at our renter profile, um, we're almost 50% empty nesters. And what we're finding is empty nesters are relocating to the suburbs to be next to their grandkids. Um, now you have to do some design standard difference there. You might do some bigger units and those types of things. Um, and with that, we've seen strong rent growth and we've seen strong investment uh, along with uh, strong leasing uh, in the suburbs. Yeah, I think <clears throat> for United Properties, uh, we opened an office in Austin, Texas in early 2020. And Austin's averaging 190 new people a day right now. Uh, Phoenix is averaging 320 new people a day. So you, I mean, you just do the math. I mean, that's a, that's a new apartment building almost every single day, just to satisfy the current uh, population growth. <coughs> and so, I think there's there's no question. I mean, some of this is trends that were starting to accelerate, and then COVID really accelerated them. And and then, uh, you know, some of the policies that we're enacting now are going to make it even harder here. But uh, but yeah, I think capital goes where typically where there's population growth, and uh, there are some, some markets right now that are just on absolute fire. It, I was in Phoenix about a month ago, and I could not believe the construction in, in some of these areas. It was it was scary to a certain extent. Yeah, I'm not saying anything different than everyone else did, but from my time at the Met Council, it was always thinking about metro regions that either punched at or above or below their weight, and so a lot of regions at that time weren't growing as fast as they ought to have. Uh, Minneapolis back then was growing a little bit faster than we expected to, but then you now you look at places in North Carolina, Austin you mentioned, uh, there's a, a number of uh, regions there where the job growth and the population growth are far outpacing ours, and I, you know we have our work cut out for us to, to jump back in the national stage, I think. Yeah, for sure. I, I you know, gosh, come, remember the Super Bowl? Remember, remember, yeah, exactly. <laughs> remember that time? <laughs> for the Ryder Cup? Um, yeah, to have this conversation is kind of depressing, to be honest. Um, uh, yeah, but, I, but I will say, I, I w we want to spend our time, and, and us as developers, you know, doing this, this is painful sometimes. And, and when you go into a community that really doesn't want you, doesn't, doesn't, won't, doesn't want to see your investment in their community, and, and put millions and millions and millions of dollars in jobs, and they just, they, they make it so difficult to allow you to do that, it, eventually, you're going to be like, you know what? I'm going to spend my time where it's where people actually want to have the growth. And so, right now, that that is that first ring suburbs. That's that suburb. That's even further out suburbs too. Yeah, that's a great question. Are you guys seeing, you know, to your point, are there communities, first ring suburbs, even further out, that are realizing this is an opportunity uh, to to attract some of those dollars? And what communities are are welcoming? Um, 
The answer is yes. Um, the answer is I think the, the problem with some of the first ring suburbs is it's usually redevelopment versus development, um, which adds just a different layer of uh, complexity to a deal. Um, you know, I've done multiple projects in Minnetonka lately, and you know they've um, you know they've got some ideas as it relates to affordable housing, and they'll kind of stand behind them as well. We've done a mixed income project there, where we were able to do a TIF district. Um, we're working on a project in the city of Plymouth, kind of the same thing. Um, you know, doing a, a TIF district. Um, I just completed a project in Tonka Bay. They didn't have any rental housing in Tonka Bay. Small community, high barriers to entry. Um, kind of a long process, kind of more of a big, long Thanksgiving family discussion for six months, but you know, we, we um, they, it's something that they wanted, it's just not sure what they wanted. Um, once again, jumping back to Minnetonka, there's, if you really look at affordable housing from the perspective of 60% AMI and 60% AMI and down, there's programs to help. They're hard programs, they're hard to get done, TIF, LIHTC, you know, Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Um, but of all the housing that was ever built in the last 10 years across the United States, only 5% were built to be affordable for people between 80% uh, and 105% AMI. And cities are starting to recognize that. And uh, so we did 5% at 80% 80, 80 AMI in Minnetonka, and we used some TIF pooled funds to get that done. So I think there's, a, there's an underserved segment of the market um, we can't get there because of construction costs and land costs and development costs uh, there, and that's 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 the piece of the market that really kind of worries me. Yeah, maybe I'll add on. We were talking to a developer that uh, owns some single-family rental, and we've been spending a lot of time and energy focused on single-family rental. It's an asset class, build for rent, where we're building entire communities uh, for rent. Uh, that's getting to be a really popular asset class, and it's another form of affordability. But one of the things I wanted to share here is I was talking to one of our home builders. It's one of the largest home builders in the southeast part of the country in the Carolinas, and he shared to me that there's just total price points that are now gone in housing that probably will never come back. You know, in certain markets, there will never be a, another single-family home built under $300,000. That just, that price point's gone. What we think that's doing is it's moving more and more people to rental, you know, because that's where affordability is. So when I talk about affordability, it's maybe a little different than some of the other panelists. We, we think of anything that's rental is probably in the affordable range. But what I wanted to share in Maple Grove, we had talked to a developer that was going to do a single-family build-for-rent community. They went in to talk to the city council. The city council sitting there with their head down thinking this is just another plan to build 750,000 million-dollar homes in Maple Grove, and they really weren't interested in approving it from a zoning perspective. And they came in and said, no, we're building, we're going to build a bunch of homes and we're going to rent them. And all of a sudden, the the city council was attentive, they were excited, and they uh, supported it, and it got approved right away. So I think you're gonna see more of these kind of things happening that's gonna create affordability across uh, markets is gonna be some of the build for rent. And I'm not talking about 60% AMI and below, I'm talking about just affordability in general. There's a lot of young people that just are not gonna be able to afford a home for later in life, and but they can still have an opportunity to raise their family in a, in a single family environment. So. So switching gears a little bit, obviously COVID has thrown a wrench into a lot of things over the last 18 months, almost two years. One of the big things that we've seen is supply chain issues, construction costs, materials, and workforce. Uh, so maybe you guys can talk about how that's affecting uh, affecting what you're seeing, you know, both over the last 18 months and then also looking forward. Maybe Matt, you can start at your end. Yeah, no, I think um, the supply chain issue is real. 
it is 100% real. We've had uh, impacts on our projects that are in production. We've had impacts with our construction company. You know, I, uh, Krauss Anderson has <coughs> been around a long time, and the reputation and the pride of, of delivery and time and schedule is paramount for, for our history and our legacy of who, who KA is. And it's struggling right now because we're, we're being tripped up by force majeure claims uh, because of shipping containers and, and uh, you know, it's, you just, man, it's a paperwork shuffle and the only people that win at the end of these deals are the attorneys. So, sorry, attorneys. If I could talk a little bit about this issue uh, from the perspective of recruiting people, joining the workforce, how do we get people to think of construction as a great career opportunity? We've been working as hard in the last few years as we, we ever have, uh, and it feels like we have to recruit hundreds, if not thousands of members every year just to fill the seats of people that either leave the industry of their own choice or retirement. And so we've been working at that pretty hard, but one real challenge for us in the multifamily space continues to be a concept called construction industry tax fraud which to cut to the chase is people being paid cash to do work, that they ought to be paid a good middle wa uh, class wage and, and benefit package. And so that happens sometimes. Some developers look the other way, well that happens. Some general contractors allow that to happen on their projects. And we work as hard as we can to change the law and to work on enforcing the current law to make sure that that doesn't happen or if it does, there's some prosecutions around it. We've had some success the last couple of years. Merritt Drywall is one that comes to mind. Ricardo Batres, who's an individual who is uh, trafficking people. And so we try to do our, the best we can to make issues of, of these people, make sure that, that end users know that we don't want to see that in job sites. It's an important thing uh, for us to uh, come at from a business fairness practice, because many of you run a legitimate business, pay your own people, pay payroll taxes on them, pay unemployment workers' compensation. So why should you have to compete against somebody else who cuts the corners and cheats? Um, so from that perspective, obviously, but also from a fairness perspective, and oftentimes these workers are immigrant workers and we're trying to talk with them about their rights and, and, and becoming a union member if that's an option as well. So it's a really important issue for us. We ask for uh, the help of people in this room to continue to talk about it, make sure that it is known and enforced and that uh, we can make some change in this industry because we're one of the better construction industries around the country. That's a remarkable thing. I look around and I think we have some great successes here in the Twin Cities, but we could do better. And there's some, there's some sites right now, any of our business reps, our organizers could take you on them right now and you'd, you would see some really, uh, you know, really horrible things happening to these workers. I think <clears throat> the only thing I would say about supply chain, I mean, it, to Matt's point, it's definitely real. It's, it's really impacting us on the industrial side right now. It's, it's almost doubled the amount of time it takes for us to get a project built and industrial, you know, normally we can build it in six to nine months. Now it's at minimum 18 to 24 months. So that, <coughs> that sector has been hit uh, really hard and I, I don't even think we've seen the worst of it yet. Uh, I think, you know, to take a, I guess a positive spin, what I hope comes out of this is, is more innovation here in the U.S. and I think it's going to require us to look at new ways of constructing, whether it's more investment to modular, uh, or local production, and I, and I realize that there comes, typically comes a higher cost with that, but I think what companies are recognizing now is, you know, you previously built things in China or in Asia and shipped it here because it was cheap, and now when you have a ship sitting off the coast for two months, and it's costing you thousands and thousands a day and delays and all these other things, the, the cost kind of evens itself out, so I hope that we start to see some more uh, local production out of this and, and some, you know, innovation in the construction industry, because we definitely need it. 
it's, it's really disrupting our business. I mean, if any of you guys are hoarding 43 wall ovens, I need them. Um, I, I was supposed to get them in October, then I was supposed to get them in November. I got them. Now they're saying February, and now I'm talking that they might not even produce them anymore because they take two chips versus one chip, and it's easier to make one chip. I mean, it's just, it's that's the frustration behind it. It's just, you, you never know, and you just never know when you're going to get them, and, and um, you know, and then do you try to swap out appliances? Do you swap out your entire appliance group? Are you going to be able to get that? I mean, we're literally taking refrigerators from units and moving them to leased units if that unit's not leased uh, because we don't have the appliances to get it done. Um, there was a lot of, I think, publicity around lumber when it went up to $1,600 per thousand board feet, and, and now it's down to like 483, 500. But, you know, steel's up, copper's up. Everything's up, and and uh, trucking, trucking. We're getting force majeure claims. Products there, no truckers. We have to pay an extra 25% more just to get our products delivered to our to our job sites. So it's affecting us uh, obviously on schedule, which then obviously you have carry interest on that, um, along with you know, you know, it's not opening up your projects on time. Yeah, I, I'll maybe take a little different angle, give you a little uh, thoughts of what we're thinking going forward uh, versus what's happened. So. So think about what just happened. We just had uh, constraints on our supply chains because of COVID and factory disruption and all this stuff. So we had this massive constraint on supply and, and deliveries, all while the Fed put tons of capital in the hands of consumers, directly into the hands of consumers, PPP to business owners. We had this rain of money put into our economy that increased demand dramatically, where people who never had liquidity suddenly had liquidity and had money to spend. So we have this demand driver that's just been insane in the last couple of years. That's starting to, to dissipate. The Fed this week and today and tomorrow are meeting, and there's going to be a massive change, I believe, in Wall Street and, and in the markets in general starting this week. Uh, the Fed is going to turn and start to get very aggressive and tightening. They're going to start talking about raising interest rates. They're going to cut uh, expansion of their balance sheet dramatically and take that liquidity out of the system. And what we should see is we're already seeing asset prices come down. We're, asset prices correct first in the most speculative areas. So crypto is already in a bear market. You've got unprofitable tech stocks down 50, 60 percent. Meme stocks like uh, AMC theaters is getting crushed. That's where it starts. Then it will start expanding to other asset classes. So you'll see the general market start to probably correct in general. And then I think you'll start seeing commodity prices come down in general. You know, lumber was having a really nice break until we had the floods up in Canada and then we had the floods in Europe and then it shot back up. But I do think we're in a general downtrend right now. We see nat gas starting to come back under, under control. So I believe that the Fed is gonna crush inflation this next year. You're gonna see prices come back down and come back more in line and we're gonna get some normalcy back, so. What do you think the impacts on multifamily is gonna be? You think it'll help boost the market and boost the supply? Well, here's the thing. The great thing about real estate, and we thought a lot about this because we allocate a lot of money to real estate, and I said, you know, real estate trades more like a bond than it does a stock. And as long as the economy's not in a deep recession where you have a lot of vacancy, um, it trades on a cap rate basis, which is tied to interest rates. We think interest rates are going to stay extremely low. Um, a lot of research goes into this, but we, we think that rates will stay very, very low for a long time. The, the Fed's gonna raise the short end, but the long end's already coming down, okay? So the long end is down below where it was at the peak. So we think that, you know, this year, we could see the 10-year at 1%, down from 145 today. Uh, and you have to remember, we're, we have the highest, even though you think our interest rates are, are really low, they're the highest rates in the advanced world, okay? The, Germany, Japan, a lot of those interest rates are negative right now, okay? So the only place you can get any yield is in the US. So we think we're gonna stay in this low rate environment 
ultra low cap rates. We're seeing secondary markets like St. Louis that was trading at a, a brand new stabilized apartment was maybe trading at a 475 to a five, maybe nine months ago. All of a sudden it's a 375 and a four and a quarter market. So we think the money that's gonna continue to chase, because people are looking for yield and income, and one of the greatest places to get yield and income right now is apartments and housing. So I think the money's just gonna continue to flow. We've been predicting this for five, six years now that money allocated to real estate's gonna increase dramatically. And so we think the cap rates are gonna stay low. Demand, and we wouldn't be surprised if you're start, gonna start seeing some three and a half cap, cap trades here in the Twin Cities. Yeah, I think just to put it in a little slightly different perspective, um, you know, a, a typical suburban offer or suburban multifamily, you need about $1.95 rents to make new construction work. Um, and we've seen 15 to 20% increases in construction costs over the last three years. Interest rates is what allowed us to keep, keep moving and, and keep developing and delivering product along with, you know, compression of, of cap rates. So if interest rates go up, we need commodity prices to go down uh, for us to continue to develop or we just have to look for different product types. All right, we're gonna run out of time here. I do wanna leave some time for questions, but real quick, this has been a little bit of a, a, a pessimistic conversation. I know we've got a lot of uncertainty here, but maybe you can just kind of give me, uh, go down the line and, and give me your prediction for the next uh, you know, 12, 18 months on what you see in the multifamily housing market. Yeah, I think, I think it's going to continue to be strong. I think that it's the favorite asset class in the market. When we talk to all the big institutions, there's three asset classes they want to invest in. Ground up multifamily or stabilized multifamily, ground up single family rent, build for rent, and industrial. You know, they took the money that was going to get allocated to retail and, and to, to uh, uh, hospitality, and they reallocated it over to, to uh, uh, multifamily. So the amount of money now chasing multifamily is, is really at an all-time high. And I don't see that changing. And we still have a housing shortage nationally. I mean, we, we, there's not going to be a, one thing our home builders said in South Carolina, we, this is a structural supply problem. We cannot fix this. We don't have enough builders, developers. We don't have enough land. You know, we're constrained at how much we can build per year in this country. We are not going to dig ourselves. We built the lowest number of homes in this country from 2008 to 2018 in 30 years. And the population is the biggest it's ever been. So we're now trying to dig ourselves out of that hole. So we've got a massive supply shortage. It just isn't gonna get solved anytime soon. I agree, I think people need a place to live. I think um, there'll be some missed opportunity in Minneapolis and St. Paul. I think you'll see continued uh, multifamily development uh, in the suburbs, uh, even farther reaching suburbs than we've seen before. Um, build for rent is huge. Um, it's actually the number one asset class from the latest ULI conference I went to. There's more money chasing that simply because the safety of it. I mean, if you, if you can rent a home and it's not renting or rent control gets put in place there, just sell it. Now it's a for sale home. I mean, so the cap rates on that stuff are in the threes. And uh, so you're seeing all this money chasing that. Um, and in the markets that you talked about, the Sunbelt markets uh, primarily, we've seen a little bit of it here, and it's been actually very successful here. Um, so, yeah, I think I think I think the capital wants to flow to multifamily, and I think that that's uh, that's why you know unfortunately Minneapolis, St. Paul are going to have are, are going to be behind now because the uh, there's no question that that. De development in those cities would have probably continued to accelerate here. And so that's going to create even more pent up demand whenever we get these policies right. It'll be interesting to see how that happens. Uh, but I think it's it's definitely going to drive uh, 
if supply stops in the urban cores, it's going to start to drive the renters to other areas, and I think you're going to see places like you know, West End and, and um, you know, Edina, 50th in France, places that you uh, have access to the kind of urban amenities, which still are what a lot of renters are seeking. Those markets are going to uh, see a lot of demand, I think. You stole my, beautiful, uh, my, my great answer there. I was going to say the same thing. I think these first-ring suburbs, second-ring suburbs are prime opportunities. I think you're going to continue to see a lot of state and federal investment in, in multifamily. I think that's going to help uh, drive uh, the market. And so I think when it comes to where it's going to be, I think Minneapolis and St. Paul will lag, but I think the region as a whole will continue to do really well. And if I'm a mayor, a city manager of one of those cities, or a, even if I'm like in Dac Dakota County or one of these other counties, I would think about how do I do what Jacob Fry did, put three or four or five times as much money into housing as I ever have, and leverage that and try to really uh, make a footprint. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the riskiest part of our process is our pre-development spend, right? We, we get property under contract, we underwrite, we grind through, we spend money on consultants, we spend money on architects, money on engineers, and you know, you're chasing a, a, a return, and, and, it, and it's, it's, it's hard, to, hard to catch. And, uh, and so I think inflation, I think, is my, my biggest fear going into the next 12 months. If that doesn't st stabilize a little bit, I think that uh, a lot of projects that are on that tipping point are, are going to be left, left in the wind. Just to jump on that, because that's something I've been discussing with a lot of cities. I think our average application to get a project approved before you actually know you have it approved is about $300,000. And so you don't want to go after cities where there is uncertainty because you're just throwing money out the door. Well, great. I think we only have a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to open it up and see if, uh, if anyone from the crowd here has any questions for our panelists. Any questions? You guys really are just attentive today, aren't <laughs> you? Is everything, is everything okay? Is it just like the holidays? Everyone's already a little bit tired? Like I know there's like a ton of caffeine outside, so y'all have no excuse. Anything? All right, I'd like to give a warm round of applause to our panelists. Thank you guys so much. This does conclude at least the content portion of our Twin Cities multifamily event. Again, I want to thank you all for coming this morning. Thank you again to our sponsors, Larkin Hoffman, Clifton Larson Allen, North Central Regional Council of Carpenters. Thank you to all of our speakers and sponsors today. Thank you, you guys, for coming. Um, you still have time to network, so I'm going to make sure that everybody wakes up a little bit. Um, there's still more breakfast. There's coffee. There's going to be music outside. We have this space until 11, so please make some new connections. Say hello to some old, old friends. If you have any questions about speaking or sponsorship opportunities going into 2022, come find me in the front. Once again, my name is Liz Baker. Thanks for spending the morning with me. Have a wonderful and safe holiday season, and we'll see you all in 2022. Thank you, guys.